As the uh, children are being dismissed for junior church, let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 34 and verse 12. Trying to make it through verse 17 this morning, maybe the end of the chapter. Everybody laughs when I say that. The title of our message this morning is Beyond What We Ask. Beyond What We Ask, I want to thank um, Pastor Gabe for filling in last week, covering the book of Jonah. Thank you for that. Here in the book of Genesis, we're not dealing with uh, anyone getting swallowed by a giant fish. But Jacob probably felt like he was swallowed by a giant fish. He had so many issues and troubles. And yet God is working through the life of Jacob as he worked through Abraham and Isaac to bring forth a special nation, the nation of Israel. Jacob has spent 29 years, uh, excuse me, 20 years up north in a place called Haran. It's also called Padan Aram. You actually will see that name there in verse 18. Where he's been treated unfairly and yet God keeps blessing him in spite of being the recipient of unfair treatment. After 20 years of that, it's time to go back to the land of Canaan, the place of his Nativity, the place of his birth. But that issue can't happen unless he first resolves a 20-year-old conflict with his brother Esau. This is where we learn that Esau is coming to meet Jacob with, what was it? I think it was 400, wasn't it? How long was it? 400? First one, there we go, thank you. Yeah, there it is, 400. I was afraid it was like 450 or something, you know. Uh, A delegation of 400, he doesn't know, are those coming to meet me, friend or foe, particularly when my brother has held a a 20-year-old murderous grudge against me. He's a, a very nervous man. And yet God, through it, performs a great work. And the two brothers, in a beautiful scene there, in chapters 32 and 33, are reconciled with each other. In fact, this um, reconciliation is so comprehensive that Esau, not only does he reconcile with his brother as Jacob is moving back into Canaan, but he actually offers him a guided and military escort back to the homeland. (laughs) And so we see this offer being made by Esau there in verses 12 through 15. Notice uh, the offer, verse 12. Then Esau said, let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you.
So this is essentially what it is. It's an offer to travel together. Not only do I not hold a grudge, not only does your life, is it not going to be eliminated through murder, but I'm actually going to offer you a, an escort back into Canaan. Boy, what, a, what an answer to prayer that is. Verse 13, Jacob cites a little problem, though, with that arrangement. He politely says, but he said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. If they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. So I can't accept your offer, brother Esau, because you might move too fast and some of the weaker in my flock aren't going to be able to keep up, and that would be physically dangerous to them. Now, that's a shepherd. Jacob was a professional shepherd. He was a professional shepherd, and he was excellent at what he did because he looked out for not just the strong in the flock, but the weak. Of course, we can draw an analogy to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our good shepherd. Jesus is not just uh, concerned about the strong in his flock. He is concerned about the weak. In fact, he is the one that will leave the 99 to retrieve the one lost sheep. We know from the Gospel of Luke. And that really is how um, church leadership should function. It's really not how fast you can move a group of people from point A to point B. It's you're looking out for the weaker in the flock as well. Those that are sort of stragglers, those that may have a difficult time, you know, picking up the things that are taught. So many people, particularly in an American society where we place such a high premium on youth and beauty, we're always focused on the strong and the the powerful. But that's not how the Lord Jesus is. That's not how Jacob is operating. And that's not how a true pastor who is analogized many times in the Bible to a shepherd, that's not how he thinks. That's not how an elder should think as they're being guided by the Holy Spirit, you know, how would this decision affect everybody? We're actually having an elder meeting tonight. We, we make decisions. And one of the things we like to think about in our elder meetings is not just who among the strong are going to benefit from this decision, but what about the, the stragglers? Uh, Jacob here is pointing that out. So verse 14, he offers uh, what we might consider to be a counter suggestion to Esau's generous offer. Verse 14, he says, please, Lord, please let my Lord pass on before his servant and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the place of the children until I come to my Lord at a place called Seir, Mount uh, Seir. This is what Jacob is saying now to Esau. You go at your pace, I will go at my pace, and the two of us are going to meet again at Mount Seir. Now, where is Mount Seir? It's in an area there 
south of the Dead Sea to the south of the nation of, of the nation of Israel, an area called Edom. And that's where Esau's descendants on a particular mountain, Mount Seir in that area where they ultimately settled. One of the things that's very interesting here is Jacob made this statement, yet he never went to Mount Seir. He went to a place called uh, Sukkot. I'll show you where that place is in just a minute, but notice what Arnold Fruchtenbaum says. This is very interesting. It says, according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come unto my Lord, unto Sierra. Nevertheless, as Fruchtenbaum says, as the context will show, Jacob did not head to Seir. Nor is there any record of Jacob ever going to Seir later. According to rabbinic tradition, now this is how the rabbis interpreted this particular verse. According to rabbinic tradition, Jacob will visit Esau in the day of the Messiah. And the reconciliation between Esau and Edom will then be complete. Thus, the rabbis interpreted Jacob's promise to be fulfilled in the Messianic kingdom. Rashi, famous Jewish interpreter, wrote, Jacob intended to go to Sukkot. When will he keep his promise to go to Seir in the days of the Messiah? The rabbi said. And I bring this up because this shows you how the rabbis of old interpret promises like this that we can't find fulfilled in, in the immediate time frame. They put them into the future. And this then becomes a guiding principle, I believe, related to how to handle so many promises in the Bible concerning the nation of Israel which have never been completely and totally fulfilled. One of the promises goes all the way back to Genesis 15, 18 through 21, where God promised Abram a track of real estate that would go from modern-day Egypt to modern-day Iraq, the Nile to the Euphrates. And you can look throughout biblical history and you'll never find Israel occupying that land. It's interesting that the nation of Israel today is alive and well, but they have a very small fraction, a very small percentage of everything that's promised. And so what do you do with promises like this? Well, a lot of people say God made a mistake. Well, that couldn't be because the Bible says it's impossible for God to what? To lie. Other people say, well, let's just sort of reinterpret the, the promise and let's just make it sort of spiritual. I mean, land, you know, what, what does that mean? That could just mean Jesus coming into your heart when you trust him as Savior. I mean, there's a lot of land here. I mean, I'll have to be honest with you, but not as much as from the Euphrates to the Nile. I mean, my goodness. Um, and so what we do here at Sugarland Bible Church, this is the methodology we, we follow, and we say, well, if the promise was never fulfilled, then it will be fulfilled in the thousand-year kingdom. That's, that's largely the basis for our belief in a coming thousand-year kingdom because there are so many 
promises in Scripture which have never been realized for the nation of Israel. And if God, it's impossible for God to lie and God means what he says and says what he means, then we have to have a time in history for these promises to be fulfilled. That way of interpreting the Bible doesn't cause me to be alarmed. It actually causes me to rejoice because it shows me that God is very faithful to his promises. Everything he says will happen exactly like he says. And if God is going to be faithful to the Jew, then he's also going to be faithful to me and you. As one pastor that I like to follow said, if God is not going to be faithful to the Jew, then what do we do with his promises to you? God is um, a God that breaks his word. So this is why this issue of promises and the kingdom is so significant. God's character is on trial. If God will not execute exactly what he said he would do to the minute detail concerning the nation of Israel, then essentially everything that he has said in his word to me, you can just um, discard it. Because God breaks his word. That's why Romans 8 is followed by Romans 9. Isn't that uh, powerful theology there? Chapter 8 comes before chapter 9. Chapter 8, our promises. Glorification is certain. Nothing can separate you from the love of God is certain. Well, how in the world could I ever trust those promises if God broke his word to Israel? Paul explains in Romans 9, which follows Romans 8, that God has not broken his word to Israel. Romans 9, Israel in the past elected. Romans 10, Israel in the present rejected. Romans 11, Israel in the future accepted. And I get through all of that and I go, thank you, Lord. You're going to keep your word. And therefore, what you said in chapter 8 to me, I can take that right to the bank. And then I can, Romans 12, verse 1, Offer my body as a living sacrifice to you. I can't really offer my body as a living sacrifice to you, Lord, if I don't trust your character. But boy, if I can trust your character because you keep your word to the Jew, which means he's going to keep his word to you. Now there's a God I can build my life on. And that's why when opportunities arise for me to speak of this coming kingdom, I will bring it up. The coming kingdom Sadly, many people think starts in Revelation 20, where it mentions the length of the kingdom being a thousand years. Well, I'm here to tell you that the contribution of Revelation 20 to the doctrine of the coming kingdom, the fancy name for this is premillennialism, just adds a little detail. Oh, by the way, it's going to last a thousand years. But the development of the doctrine goes way back into the pages of the Old Testament where you see many, many promises to Israel that have never been fully realized. That's where the doctrine starts. That's why it has to occupy a prominent place in the thinking of the Christian. 
There's got to be a place in history where God fulfills His Word. Oh, I have that, the Millennial Kingdom. And even the ancient rabbis looked at it that way with even things that you sort of read and and run over very quickly in your mind. Sometimes we read so fast we don't understand the full import. But right here it says Jacob never really met with Esau at Mount Seir. And there's no record of that ever happening. And rabbinical thought says, well, that must be a kingdom promise. And that's the method that we apply as we study through the Old Testament and the book of Genesis. This leads now to kind of a secondary offer by Esau. And it says, Esau said, please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. So I want to, if you don't want to keep up with me as we're moving back into Canaan because you're worried or concerned about the weaker in the flock, the children, the weaker animals, etc., then at least let me leave behind some of my armed guards to escort you in according to your own speed. And it's kind of interesting that Jacob turns down that offer also. He says at the end of verse 15, but he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. I don't, I don't need an armed escort. Appreciate, appreciate the offer. I really don't need it. Because I have a promise from God. The promise from God is he will take me back into the land of Canaan. I find it interesting that with all of this sort of turmoil that Jacob has gone through, you know, wrestling with the angel of the Lord, all of his concern um, about reconciliation with his brother, that the Lord already had the whole thing figured out. And beyond what even Jacob had asked for. He never asked for an armed escort. He never asked for an escort, but he got it. That's why I have entitled this message Beyond What We Even Ask. One of the things that you'll see in your Christian life is you'll pray to the Lord for something, and sometimes you don't really think God is going to answer because he doesn't come through on our timetable. But the truth of the matter is, God doesn't function according to my stopwatch. He functions according to His sovereign plan. He does not answer prayer requests too early or too late. He answers them right on time. Not necessarily my time, but on His time. We might even call it Christian standard time. (laughs) And as you're praying for something, what you'll discover is when God does answer, he often throws into the mix a bunch of things you never even asked for. That's what Jacob got here. I want to make it into the promised land. I want to be reunited with my brother. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you that. And I'm going to give you a bunch of other stuff as well. An armed escort if you want it. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. 
says, now to him who is able to do, watch this language, exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. Don't be surprised when God delivers on your day of deliverance, which will not be your timing, it will be his timing. Don't be surprised if he not only delivers with 100% totality, but gives you all these other blessings that you never even thought of, asked about, or even contemplated. Solomon had this experience in 1 Kings 3, verse 15. Excuse me, 1 Kings 3, verse 5. And it says, At Gibeon, the Lord to, appeared to Solomon in a dream by God, or by night rather, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? How would you like that? <laughs> uh, God shows up to your house tonight as you're sleeping in a dream. And he says, ask whatever you want. I mean, that's what Solomon had here. Ask whatever you want. I mean, as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking, wow, Lord, you better not put that one my direction because I, I can think a lot of things I want. So what Solomon did is he was the last reigning king over the United Kingdom is he said, therefore, give to your servant an understanding, heart, to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? The only thing I want, Lord, Solomon said, is I just want the ability to do my job correctly, because you put me in this position as king, and I just want to be able to discern correctly so I can judge your people and administer your people in my Solomonic reign for 40 years, which lasted roughly from 971 to 931 B.C., the, the, the last uh, king being preceded by Saul and David to reign over the entire kingdom before it was divided. And then it says in verse 10, 1 Kings chapter 3, the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for a long life for yourself, nor have you asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your words, see, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall there any be anyone arise after you. God says, I'm going to give you exactly what you asked for. And the, the verse doesn't stop there. The chapter doesn't stop there. Verse 12 is followed by verse 13. And I have also... Also, above and beyond what we even ask or hope, I have also given you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, 
so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. I'm, I'm going to give you what you asked for. You obviously asked out of sincere motives based on the position that I have put you in, but I'm going to give you a bunch of stuff that you never asked for anyway. That's what's happening here with Jacob. This, this is what Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 means when it says, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. I can tell you from personal experience. And I wish we had five hours for me to go into this. That this has happened in my life over and over and over again. I have prayed specifically for something only to become frustrated with God because I don't get the answer when I want it. But persevered in prayer, that's what the Bible says we should do. Ask and it will be given to you. You know, Seek and you will find. Knock, the door shall be opened. And I have discovered in my own personal life that all of a sudden it's like a shock when the answer comes. Because the answer doesn't just come, it comes like with a bunch of other stuff that I never even thought about. I mean, I'm not just going to give you the gift, I'm going to give you the present, I'm going to give you the bow tie, I'm going to give you the arrangements that go with the gift. And that's the goodness of God. This is how God works. And it's so easy to try to put God in a box that he's sort of holding out on us. A lot of times he's not holding out on us. What he's doing is he's waiting for us to reach the place of maturity where we can handle the blessing. So don't become frustrated with God in your prayer life. Just just hang in there with him. Um, and if you don't get the answer that you wanted, that's a good thing too. <laughs> because God knows that if you had that, whatever your heart is desiring, it might be destructive to you. You, you can thank him for the unanswered prayers as well as the answered ones. There's even a country western song about that, isn't there? And I'm, I will sing that for you at this time. No. But it's just so interesting to me that Jacob has all this anxiety, wrestling, what about my brother? And the whole God had already changed his heart. And then, as we're reading here, provided for Jacob above and beyond even what he asked for. I never asked that the brother that hates me, that wants to kill me, would give me an armed escort back to the promised land. To the point where I don't even need it. And so it's at this point that Jacob and Esau... Separate. Jacob returns to Mount Seir. Actually, I think that's a misprint. Esau returns to Mount Seir. Uh, Jacob goes to a place called Sukkot. Look at verse 16. So Esau returned on that, on that day on his way to Seir. Do you see how the Bible reads over and over again like a history book. I mean, if you just look at eight, verse 18, Canaan, Shechem, Padan, Aram, verse 16, Seir, verse 17, Sukkot. Um, I don't know if I have to emphasize this all the time, but it just strikes me over and over again that the Bible wants to be understood as a history book. 
These are actual places that you could go and visit today. The, the spiritual truths that are coming out to us from the Bible emanate from a book that ultimately historically happened. I bring this up because we're living in this sort of humanistic takeover of American society, humanistic takeover of the educational system, and we think that the people that have the real history are the humanists that control the educational system. And what we're being relegated to is, oh, you're just religious. You're a religious person. There have been many times where I have tried to express an opinion in the public square where people immediately dismiss it. Oh, that's just religious. As if I'm reading from a book like Veggie Tales or something. Jack and the Beanstalk. I think Satan would love to drive the wedge in the Christian mind between what is spiritual and what is historical. The Bible knows no such distinction. Ironclad history and the great truths coming out of it come from a credible, archaeological, geographical, historical context. This book has stood the test of time of critic after critic after critic that have tried to dismiss it on historical grounds. And yet the attacks have withered over the years. People, all they can do is sort of recycle the arguments that have already been refuted. And so that's where Esau went. He went to Mount Seir. That's where his descendants, the Edomites, settled in that area um, to the south of the nation of Israel. And where did Jacob go? He didn't go to Mount Seir. That's why the rabbis think this is going to be fulfilled in the kingdom. Verse 17, it says, Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Sukkot. Where is uh, Sukkot? It is east of the Jordan. Jacob is going back into Canaan, the place of his birth, but he's not there yet. He journeyed for a season in this place called Sukkot, which is in the Transjordan. Charles Ryrie says Sukkot means booths. It was east of the Jordan and just north of the Jabbok. Boy, Jabbok, Jordan, <laughs> Sukkot. I mean, this reads like Google Google Maps, the Bible does. It tells you exactly where he went for a season. What, what did Jacob do there? He built a house for himself. Verse 17, he built house for his uh, house booths which were kind of um, protected areas for his cattle. And he named the place Sukkot, which basically in Hebrew means booths, um, temporary places of shelter. Now, the law of Moses is not going to be given for another six centuries, roughly. But eventually the nation of Israel is going to come out of 400 years of Egyptian bondage. And God is going to miraculously provide for them every step of the way. 
everything is going to be provided for them. They have to step out of Egypt, their comfort zone. In fact, a lot of them didn't want to do that. And as they got out into the wilderness, Sinai wilderness, a lot of them wanted to go back to Egypt. You want to go back to slavery? Well, at least we got, you know, three hots and a cot, so to speak. At least we got regular meals. But now you're putting me in a situation, Lord, where I've got to trust you. I don't know if I can do that. You know, a lot of Christians are that way. They they will not step out in what God has called them to do because they're really suspicious about provision. I mean, am I really going to be provided for if I step out and do what I think God is calling me to do? Well, um, do it prayerfully, do it discerningly, but I would encourage you to just take a step or two and, and watch God provide. This is what God is doing with the nation of Israel all the way to Mount Sinai. I mean, you got manna in the wilderness. You have um, water coming out of rocks. Provision after provision after provision. And as they made their way to Mount Sinai, God said to them, I'm going to give you a calendar system in the Mosaic Law, a holiday system. And there's going to be a particular holiday that you are to celebrate called Sukkot, translated into English, Tabernacles. It's going to be one of the uh, fall feasts. And God in Leviticus 23 gave to the nation of Israel a calendar and he gave to them holidays that they're to celebrate. See, we, we think we're the first that's come up with these national holidays. Are you kidding me? Israel had these a long time ago. There's uh, four in the spring, three in the fall. We are of the persuasion here that the spring feasts were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. In his first coming, leaving the three fall feasts yet to be fulfilled in his second coming, you'll notice that there's a big uh, gap of time between the last spring feast and the first fall feast. Do you know what that gap of time is? That's us. That's the church. We're living in between the two. Because God in the past has fulfilled four feasts for Israel. God in the future will fulfill uh, three feasts for Israel. Well, what's God doing in the interim while Israel is in disobedience and unbelief? He's working through a unnatural branch, Paul calls it. Romans 11. A branch that doesn't even seem to belong in the right tree. A foreign branch. It's like a a lemon branch, let's say, put into an apple tree. It's kind of peculiar. It doesn't really belong. And yet, it's bearing fruit. Who is that branch, Romans 11? That's the church. That's us. As God's program with Israel is currently in suspension, not cancellation. Did you see the difference? In postponement. But the day will come where God will be finished with the age of the church. The church will be translated to heaven in what is called the rapture. Are you looking forward to that? I don't have a problem in my life that the rapture wouldn't fix, as the saying goes. 
And then God will fulfill the remaining three feasts for the nation of Israel yet future. Passover, fulfilled in Christ's redemption. Unleavened bread, fulfilled in Israel's separation from Egypt. First fruits, which was praise for the initial harvest. Pentecost, praise to the Lord for the full harvest. And then there's this gap of time. There's going to be trumpets or Rosh Hashanah. Israel's new year, where God is going to regather the Jews at the end of the tribulation period. Matthew 24:31. Then there's atonement. I think that'll be the day that Israel is converted. In the tribulation period, Zechariah 12, verse 10. And then will come this Sukkot. What is Sukkot about? Sukkot is about commemorating God because He physically looked out for us during the wilderness wanderings. It's also called booths. And that feast will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. It says in Zechariah 14, verse 16, then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths, Sukkot. Fulfilled in the Millennial Kingdom, one of the great feast days of the nation of Israel, celebrating His uh, provision. All of this to say that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is in the provision business. Acts chapter 28, verse 10. This is something that happened to Paul as he was leaving a particular island area and going to Rome. He was leaving Malta. And it says, They also honored us with many marks of respect. When we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. The provision came in. Doesn't even say Paul sent out a, a newsletter or anything. God just provided because that's the nature of God. That's what Sukkot is about. Where piece, best piece of um, theology you'll ever learn, one of the best, is just a little trite saying. I picked it up by listening to Pastor Chuck Smith. Uh, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. He just said uh, something very simple. He said, where God guides, God provides. If God is guiding you somewhere, don't be shocked if you're provided for as you go. Provided for as you go, provided for once you get there, because that's the nature of God. Philippians 4 verse 19 says, My God shall supply all my Greeds, whoops, doesn't say that. All my needs, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's Christ's whole point as he's uh, talking to the people there on the bank there of the Sea of Galilee, giving the Sermon on the Mount. What are you worried about everything for? What are you, what are you worried about provision for? What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? And he says, look at the birds who aren't even made in the image of God. 
that have less value than you. Look at the grass of the field, which is not made in the image of God, that has less value value than you. God takes care of them. Won't he take care of you? O ye of little faith. There's the problem. We just don't trust God can pull it off. And yet, the biblical record is such that God provided everything to even to a rebellious people. Do you realize that as they left Egypt, the manna came like clockwork every single day? It was there for them every morning. The only exception was the Sabbath because they weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath to gather it. They could, they weren't supposed to, to hoard it. They were supposed to sort of gather it up um, day to day. But a lot of people thought, well, it might not be there tomorrow because I don't really trust God. So I'm going to hoard it for today. I'm going to take more than my fair share for today because I don't really know if the, the provision is going to be there tomorrow. And God would not allow them to do that. The provision you know, withered, soured, etc. They were to trust Him to provide for them every day. Isn't that what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our monthly bread. No, daily. It'll be there every single day. Now, the Sabbath, you're not to work. You can gather extra for that. But other than that... You need to trust me every single day. Every single day the provision will be there. And and the whole Old Testament record documents that. In fact, Sukkot, a feast day, comes out of that principle. Pastor Chuck Smith, where God guides, God provides. God is not broke. He is not let down to his last buck. God is not worried about inflation. God is not worried about the price of gas. He is not worried about America's energy dependence. used to be independence. He's not worried about economic downturns. He is not worried about not you not having enough resources in old age. In fact, if I'm reading the Bible correctly, the prophet Isaiah says, you guys are carrying around these idols, literal idols. Do you think when you get old, you're going to be able to carry those around? They're going to get pretty heavy as you get old. What, what you need is someone to carry you around when you get old. You'll, you'll see all of this through the prophet um, Isaiah. And that's what Sukkot is all about. This um, could be some kind of prefigurement of Sukkot. We're not in the law era yet. We're still in the patriarchal era. But this is where it all comes from, most likely. This was the provision of God. I mean, there's a house involved. There's provision for the the livestock. And so Jacob gives it a name. The name of the place is uh, Sukkot. And that um, sort of 
if you will, ends the whole reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. But as we move out of that section into the next one, something happens here that, to be completely honest with you, I wish was not in the Bible. I have spent all week, the last couple of weeks, trying to outline this chapter, chapter 34, trying to understand it. I know why it's here. I'll share that with you. It's here for a very, very valid reasons concerning the life of Israel. But it involves uh, an incident. The, the, your English translations, if you have a study Bible, it will say the Dinah incident. We know about the birth of Dinah earlier. And something you know terrible happens here to her. But yet it's something that is used by God to further his purposes for the nation of Israel. God, as this is recorded, never says it's good. You know, what does the Bible say? All things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. God, in the life of the Christian, will work all things together for good. He will work all things together for his ultimate purpose for you, which is to conform you and to transform you in daily life and myself into the image of his son, morally speaking. That's his highest purpose for you. It's in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. And he will use every single thing in your life to achieve that purpose. He will use all things together for good. But the Bible never says all things are good. See the difference? I hear this uh, misquoted by Christians constantly. Something terrible happens to a person. Well, all things are good. That's not what the Bible says. It never says all things are good. We're living in a fallen world, are we not? I mean, that's the whole issue with the fall of man in Genesis 3. There's a, there's a curse on the cosmos. There is difficulty for the anthropos, man. Never says all things are good. There are, there are things in this world that God says, I wish weren't there. And in fact, when he recreates the world, eternal state, those things won't be there anymore. But in the interim, we're living in the nasty now and now, where bad things happen to good people. And yet, what the Lord is saying is not that all things are good. In fact, I have a plan in mind where I'm going to rid our universe of all of evil. But in the interim, I will use all things together for good to accomplish um, his purpose in your life. And what I'm speaking here uh, is this Dinah incident. It's in chapter 34. It takes place in Shechem, in the land of Israel. But before we get to chapter 34, we have to finish chapter 33, amen, verses 18 through 20, where it's Jacob's arrival in Shechem where this Dinah incident takes place. 
So we're going to conclude today by looking at Jacob's arrival in Shechem. Notice, first of all, Jacob finally returns to Canaan. I'm in chapter 33 and verse 18. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, where he came from Padan Aram and camped before the city. Now notice it says Jacob arrived safely in Canaan. Uh, some translations say he arrived in peace. Why, do, why does it say that? Because God is fulfilling his word to Jacob. Genesis 28, verse 15 says, Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. Genesis 31, 3 to Jacob earlier in our story. It says, The Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Check, God has fulfilled his word. And notice he went to this place called Shechem. Within the land of Israel, there is where Shechem is. Now we are um, west of the Jordan. You see where he was east of the Jordan at Sukkot. We're not told how long he was there for. But now he's left Sukkot, that place of provision, and he's back in the land of his nativity the land of his birth. And so what we have seen is one of many biblical returns of the Jews to their ancient homeland. Remember, Abram sent out the servant to get a wife for his son. The servant returned, Genesis 24 roughly, to the land of Israel. Now the same thing has happened with Jacob. He has been outside the land for at least 20 years. He left the land and passed through the Jordan with only his staff. And that doesn't mean his secretary, his administrative assistant, his typist. means like staff, like a piece of wood. That's all he had. And now he's got 12 kids and two wives, and two bridesmaids, and he's wealthy. That's the the faithfulness of God. But he came back into that land. That would be return number two. And I hope you get used to this pattern because it happens over and over again in the Bible. The nation of Israel is going to be outside of the land in Egypt for 400 years. And God says, you're going back in. And that's what happened in the book of Joshua. Then the nation of Israel would be outside the land of Israel in Babylon to the east, modern day Iraq, for 70 years. And God says, you're going right back into the land as fulfilled in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then the Jews, just after the time of Christ, were were driven into what's called the diaspora, Worldwide dispersion, which is where the Jews have been for 2,000 years. But the prophet Ezekiel says, oh, you're coming right back in, in God's timetable. And did you know that every time you pick up the newspaper and read about the nation of Israel, you're seeing a fulfillment of God's promise? I'm going to recycle you in my time frame back into your ancient homeland in unbelief. That's happening right before your eyes. So this dispersion and returns is pretty repetitive of a theme as you go through the Scripture. 
he was probably a little north from where his father Isaac was. Um, as you look at verse 18, he came ultimately from Padan Aram, which is that circle up north. And then as you look at the end of verse 18, it says, and he camped before the city. You're dealing with the nation of Israel, which is not even called the land of Israel yet, a Canaanite area. These cities are Canaanite-dominated city-states. Jacob was not a citizen of Shechem. So he has to kind of be like a nomad, uh, kind of on the outskirts of the city. And this is where this um, horrific incident involving his daughter, uh, Dinah, transpires. It's interesting here that Jacob purchases a field. That's in verse 19. He bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. We've got a seller. The children of Hamar, Shechem's father, we have a buyer, Jacob. We have a price, 100 pieces of money. And so Jacob buys a a track of real estate within the land of Israel, which quite frankly is small potatoes compared to what God gave him. A track of real estate that would go from Egypt to Iraq. He's not even inside the city. He's like a nomad, and he buys this little track of real estate Why is that given to us in Scripture? Because it's what we would call the doctrine of first fruits. Abram, who then became Abraham, also bought a piece of real estate in Genesis 23 as a burial plot for his wife Sarah, where Abraham himself was buried on that same plot. So it's interesting that both Abraham and Jacob, although they have clearly not possessed everything God said they would have one day in the millennial kingdom, they do own little tiny pieces of real estate within the land of Israel. This is what you call first fruits. Christ's resurrection to us is called first fruits. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And God has made to you as a Christian a ton of promises that have not yet been realized yet. So how do I know God is going to make good on those promises because of the doctrine of first fruits? First fruits is the initial part of the crop comes in which guarantees to Israel that they're going to get the rest of the crop. Did you know that you have first fruits right now as a Christian? You have not received everything that God has promised you, but you have a token of it through the indwelling ministry of the Spirit. The book of Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 14, actually, yeah, verse 14, 13 talks about the Holy Spirit of promise. Notice he's the spirit of promise. Promising us what? Promising us everything else that God's going to give. Verse 14 of Ephesians 1, who is given to us as a pledge. That's a down payment. 
of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Do you realize that the Holy Spirit within you as a Christian is a pledge, it's first fruits, it's a down payment, it's like Jacob and Abraham having little tiny pieces of real estate juxtaposed against the ultimate promise that they're going to have the whole land one day. Everything that God said He would do for you, He's going to do. And He says, I want you to trust me with it. And to demonstrate my trustworthiness, I'm going to give to you a down payment. That's what a down payment is. You make a down payment on something, you're guaranteeing to the seller more payments are forthcoming. Jesus' death and resurrection is the ultimate down payment. And then when you get saved, the Holy Spirit is put into you by God Himself. And every time the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, have you noticed that the Spirit will do that? Have you noticed the Spirit keeps you on a tight leash? Every time you sense that, oh, I shouldn't have said that, oh, I shouldn't have written that, That's the work of the Spirit within you. And rather than being agitated and angry with that, look at it as, well, that's my down payment. The the fact that I've convicted of such and such a sin means that the Holy Spirit is inside of me. Because I used to do that same thing as a non-Christian, and it never bothered me. Now it bothers me. That's the work of the Spirit. At which point we would say, ah, I just hate the Holy Spirit. No. You say, that's your down payment. The fact that that's happening in you is a pledge that God has given you, meaning He's going to make good on everything He said He would do for you. In the, in this age and in the age to come. So both Abram, Abraham and Jacob have this this pledge, these tiny pieces of land as first fruits for ultimately everything that they're going to receive. And he bought this nearby this city called Shechem. Did you know that Genesis is the book of beginnings? Beginning of the universe, beginning of life, beginning of man, marriage, evil, clothing, religion, salvation, language, government, nations, Israel. You'd have no knowledge of any of these things without the book of Genesis. And it it tells you where Shechem came from. You say, well, I don't really care about Shechem. Well, you'll care as you keep reading the Bible. Because that's where they buried Joseph's bones. Joshua 24:32 says now they buried the bones of Joseph. Did I say Joshua? I meant Joseph. Now they buried the bones of Joseph which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem in the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamar the father of Shechem for 100 pieces of money. You see, Joseph, he believed these promises that the Jews would come back out of Egypt into the land, and he's, he's instructing his his uh, his sons, hey, when I die, just make sure you take the bones with you and bury them in the promised land, because God says that's where we're going to get back to. And we learned that his bones were buried in this place called Shechem, and you're seeing the origin of Shechem here. Where did Shechem come from? 
it's this uh, first fruits that Jacob had, guaranteeing further fulfillment of promises. And what does Jacob do in this little piece of real estate? Well, he builds a he builds an altar. Verse twenty, it says, then he erected there an altar. This is part of the patriarchal tradition. They they built altars everywhere they went. In other words, they had a lifestyle of worship. You know, it really doesn't matter where we're going to end up. They said to themselves, we're going to have church. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people will move to a place in the United States or in the world because of a job. But they won't investigate, is there a church there that I can attend that's sound? Because my number one priority as a, the leader of my home is not more money. It's, it's, it's a place of worship. I mean, if, if there's a church there, then maybe I can contemplate making that move. Unfortunately, the way we think as Americans, we think in terms of economics. And whether there's a church there or not is kind of an afterthought. Because we really don't have a lifestyle of worship the way the patriarchs are exemplifying for us. I understand that there's people that are pushed into places where there is no church there for them to attend. Well, the Lord might be calling you to start a church. Well, I don't want to start a church. Okay, start a Bible study. Don't call it a church. Call it a Bible study. Because my Bible says where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of you. That's how you make decisions as a Christian. Is, is there a place where I can fellowship with God's people? That's priority number one. The economics is priority number two. The American has the whole thing lopsided in their mind. The church is kind of like an afterthought because we don't exemplify the lifestyle of worship that you're seeing here with Jacob. So he erected there an altar and look at this, and called it El uh, Elohi or yeah Elohi Israel. This is one of God's names. By the way, this is the first use of Jacob's new name Israel, which we studied in chapter 32. See how that name is now being identified with God's people. Here, the nation of Israel, we would expect that, would we not, in the book of beginnings. This, of course, is one of God's names. We've learned several of them as we've moved through the book of Genesis. He's called El Roy, the God who sees. He is called El Olam, the everlasting God. As we've moved through the book of Genesis, we've seen him called Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Charles Ryrie says of El Elohi Israel, what it means is a mighty God is the God of Israel. It's a name that speaks of God's national care 
or the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Every time you see one of these names in the book of Genesis, by my count, we've studied seven. It's a revelation of something very special concerning God's character. The Bible begins Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, with his name Elohim, which means power. Fitting in Genesis 1 because he's bringing in six days the heavens and the earth into existence. In Genesis 2, he's called Yahweh, meaning he's powerful, but he's relational. That fits Genesis 2, which is all about the creation of man. You mean the God who spoke and the heavens and the earth leapt into existence? Elohim wants a personal relationship with little old me? Yes, that's what my name means, God says. Yahweh. I'm also the God who is aware. El Roy, I see. I'm also El Olam. I am the uncaused cause. I've always been, and I will always be. Yeah, but the Jehovah's Witnesses just showed up at my house the other day, and they told me that Jesus was a created being. Yeah, I know they told you that, but that's false doctrine. Jesus never had a beginning point. He is the eternally existent second member of the Godhead. How how could he be anything else when his name is El Olam? I am Jehovah Jireh. I'm the provider. Sukkot, booths, provision. That's who I am. He's also called number six here, the God that Isaac feared. You know, God's rad and he's my dad. T-shirt. Okay, I get it. You're trying to tell me God's relational. He is. But what about His holiness? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What about having not this sort of, you know, fear where you're breaking out in sweat. Fear just means respect. You have respect for the principles of God the Word of God, and the things of God, and you order your life accordingly. That's what Isaac did, because that's God's name. He's the God Isaac feared. And here we learn that God is forming a nation. God, the God of Israel, right there in verse 20. Which means, he who protects Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. Uh, to be frank with you, I don't spend a lot of my time worried about the future of the nation of Israel. I do spend some time worried about the future of America, but not Israel. Because the very name of God is God, the God of Israel. Is Israel is always going to be preserved. In fact, God says if you want to get rid of Israel... Jeremiah 33, you need to get rid of the sun and the moon and the stars. Because as long as the sun and the moon and the stars exist, Israel will always be a nation before me. Even when they were out of their land for 2,000 years, God was looking out for them and had plans to recycle them into their own land. So now 
Jacob is in Shechem where this Dinah incident takes place. So in preparation for next week, I would encourage you to read Genesis chapter 34. Speaking of this relational God and how he wants a relationship with us, that's sort of the point of evangelism. God has provided everything that we need to enter into a relationship with him through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the second member of the eternal Godhead 2,000 years ago. At that point, 2,000 years ago, Jesus stepped out of eternity into time to live a life in my place that I could never live and to pay a debt that I could never pay. His final words on the cross were, it is finished. And what he tells us to do is to trust in what he has done on our behalf. We don't trust in our own good works to enter into a relationship with God. We trust in his good work that he did for me. My Christianity is not dependent on my ability to persevere. It is dependent on his ability to persevere, which he did 2,000 years ago. And so anybody within the sound of my voice can receive that free gift even now as I'm speaking, where the Spirit convicts them of their need to trust in the provision of the Savior and they respond by placing their faith and trust for their forgiveness and their their eternity completely into this man, Jesus Christ. It's something you can do right now in your heart of hearts. Even as I am speaking, you don't need to walk an aisle, join a church, give money to do this. It's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord. Enter into that relationship with Yahweh who wants a relationship with you. If it's something you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for Genesis 33 and what it teaches us. I don't know if I'm necessarily looking forward to Genesis 34, but it's part of the Word of God, and there are lessons for us there. Help us to walk these things out this week as we continue to walk with you as our great shepherd, our great high priest, and our great provider. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.